Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. Welcome to the In the Clouds podcast. This is Bobby Tishy along with Cole Fisher. And today we're continuing our recapping of the ultraviolet keynote speakers with Marty Kine and uh, one of the biggest celebrities on the planet and one of the most, you know, ignorant minds out there uh, who interviews Marty during this session. (laughs) I'll say so. I can agree with that for sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So actually, uh, when, when I was listening to this, I was like, oh, this is going like, this is going really well. Like this is a really cool interview. And then, you know, randomly uh, the two of them would break into just uh, like a kind of a conversation break where they would just go off on a tangent of something awful like uh, Taylor Swift music or so as long as you can get through those hurdles, a really good conversation <laughs> with, uh, with, with some good detours on the way. Yeah. And really what we spent the, uh, half the time talking about when we were talking about uh, pop culture uh, was CDPs. And Marty, um, along with his uh, co-worker at Salesforce, Chris O'Hara, wrote the book Customer Data Platforms, uh, which I, I highly recommend. Even though I haven't read it, I'm just recommending it. Uh, but um, really talking through like the need for a CDP, what a CDP actually is, how it can help organizations, really kind of diving into, into some of the deep details of a CDP. And then like Cole said, if you're not there for the CDP conversation, stay around for Taylor Swift. Marty was also the head writer for pop-up video on VH1. We talk about that a little bit. So um, it's a it's a good listen. It's not bad. It, it really is cool. And he's got some cool stories, um, but it, it's, it's really interesting too. As anybody that's interfacing right now with Salesforce products, anybody that's working with uh, data and integrations to said products or anybody in the marketing space, CDP is one of those terms that over the last few years has been coming up more and more. So this is a really helpful conversation just to kind of break down where it all started, what it means, where it's going. Really cool conversation. Great. hope you guys enjoy this conversation with uh, myself and Marty Kine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ultraviolet Fireside Chat with Marty Kine, the SVP of Marketing Cloud Strategy at Salesforce. In preparing for these sessions, the more I found out about Marty, the more I was intrigued. So really excited for this conversation. He's got an incredible background and a wealth of wide-ranging experience. So excited to dive into our main topic of CDPs uh, based on Marty's book, Customer Data Platforms, but also some of his other career accomplishments that have nothing to do with technology. So excited to jump into those. Marty, thank you for joining us. If you wouldn't mind starting with a brief introduction of yourself and experience, and we'll dive in. Yeah, thank you, Bobby, and uh, thank you to Lev for inviting me. I'm very excited. Lev is a very uh, valued partner of ours at Salesforce, and uh, we do a lot of great work together. And so I'm really, uh, really happy to be here. And I did want to, of course, mention this book. Uh, I don't know if you can see it there, Customer Data Platforms, co-written with my friend Chris O'Hara, also at Salesforce. It's not 
all about Salesforce. It's really just about the category of customer data platforms. Uh, it just came out. So I commend it to all of you for your gift giving needs and also just for self-improvement. And uh, it is my fourth book. The other ones I wrote by myself, they were memoirs. And um, that's my side gig as an author. My first one was called House of Lies, and that was about being a management consultant. And it was turned into a television show. Um, the main character is named Marty Khan. And if you've seen it, you can already tell that he's nothing like me at all. Uh, so it was highly Hollywoodized. And then I wrote another one. It was kind of a self-help book about um, business uh, satire. And then another one about my dog, actually, the tender side. In my day job, I, uh, I work uh, aligned with the product strategy team at Salesforce in the marketing cloud. So that's the MarTech and AdTech suite of products. Trying to future-proof it, make sure we're going the right direction. I've been heavily involved with the customer data platform rollout, which is uh, our biggest announcement of recent years. And then before that, I worked at Gartner. I was an analyst for five years covering marketing clouds, and I was in the advertising business doing measurement and, and so on. So as you said, I have a, a varied career. Yeah, well, the one thing that you didn't mention was the, the pop-up video piece on VH1. Oh, how did you find that? I, I hit it on the internet. I hit it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but before we go there, I'm just curious, you mentioned the, the other three books you've written have all been side projects on your own. Do you just really love to write or what's kind of what called you to, to write those books and be in publishing? It's uh, it's a long and, and funny story, sort of funny. Not to my mother, but uh, I guess to me looking back. But I always wanted to be a writer. So I came to New York, you know, in the 90s and I worked in magazines and publishing and I, I did OK. But I realized I'd never be able to own my own apartment. So I went back to business school. And I remember when I went back to business school, this was before the dot com crash. You know, it was during the, the heyday, the, the late 90s and 2000. And uh, I said, all right, I'm quitting writing now forever. I, you know, it, it didn't work out. I couldn't I could never buy an apartment and I'm gonna be a, a business person, you know. And then I came out and uh, became a consultant. And the first thing I did was start to write this memoir about consulting. And ironically enough, that was my most successful book. <laughs> so I didn't get successful until I actually quit. So I don't know what the lesson is there. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Was it something that you wrote as you went along as a management consultant or did you write it at the end as a kind of a uh, almost like a memoir of your time as a management consultant? No, it was in the moment. In fact, it started as okay. a dictionary. I, I don't know if I've told anyone this. I, consultants speak funny. And the reason they speak funny is we that do. Uh, <laughs> you do. And and. <laughs> Not not Lev, but other consultants will sometimes use language in a way to obscure their lack of actual knowledge about whatever the topic is. So I was kind of making fun of that kind of consultant and uh, at a lesser firm. And, and so I thought, well, I'm going to create a consultant to English dictionary. So whenever they say something like leverage, you know, it means use or, you know, a hard stop means, you know, I'm, I have to leave, I'm bored or something. So I just created this, this uh, <laughs> consultant English dictionary and then it turned into a memoir. It kind of got out of control, but I would actually write it at work. So We could probably spend the next hour talking about I that know. dictionary. Like, the, is the juice worth the squeeze or perspective? All these different buzzwords that have kind of taken yeah, over the consulting the ocean. and digital marketing. Yeah, oh, there's a good one. Yeah. I had a uh, column in, in Fast Company some years ago and i actually i took that one boiling the ocean i said what would it take to boil the ocean how much energy and it turns out there isn't enough energy on earth to do that so it's not possible 
Well, nobody else gets anything else from this session. Now that boiling the ocean is probably the don't do uh, it. <laughs> yeah, it's not possible. So just don't say it anymore. <laughs> but getting into the the main meat of our session and something that that I'm really excited to be talking about because it's something that our customers are always asking about. They've either implemented one or they're thinking about implementing one or they don't really know what it means. And that's all around customer data platforms, which is the subject of your book. And so I wanted to just start with what is a CDP and what isn't a CDP? <laughs> that's actually a harder question to answer than one might think. Uh, the, the truth about the customer data platform, CDP as a category, as a kind of MarTech category, is that it was invented by a person. It was invented in 2013 by a guy named David Robb. It wasn't invented, it was named, I, would, I should say. And he Isn't is a, David the founder or the leader of the CDP Institute? CDP Institute, that's the guy. Yeah. He's still very you know active and a, a lovely man, a very well-respected kind of independent consultant over the years. He used to help companies with their, RFP process and on the MarTech side, like marketing automation and CRM. Mm -hmm. And and he noticed in 2013 a category of software that appeared that he, he called it, uh, it was packaged software that, that sort of created its own database. And he said, it's not exactly marketing automation. It's not really campaign management. And um, it's not an email system. What is it? So he said, I think something's happening here. And he said, there's a new category and I'll call it customer data platform. And he had in it um, companies like Agile One. He did a report, Redpoint, companies that have been acquired or, or are considered sort of the first guard of CDP. And it evolved over time. And nobody talked about it, though. And from 2013 to about 2017, no one, it was very much under the radar. And then it exploded. At Gart I was at Gartner at the time. And in 2016, 17, and I've asked David, I interviewed him. Uh, on a podcast and I said, and for the book actually, and I said, why did it explode at that time? And he said, I, I really have no idea, but it, it just did. It, it's one of these hype, <laughs> these hype factors. And what a CDP does, it, it um, emerged to solve a, a problem that is quite common. And the problem is, can be summed up as sort of disconnected data. What has happened in, particularly in the marketing suite, but not only marketing over the years is that uh, the CMO has acquired a bunch of different uh, applications. So there's email system and then mobile became a thing. So now there's mobile analytics and social became a thing. And, and then you had, you still had your web team maybe, and you had somebody building an app. And, and eventually what happened was customer data, data about the same customer could sit in 12, 15. Somebody at a consumer products company told me they had over a hundred different places where the same customer could be represented. So the marketer realized they can't unlock and unify this data uh, without some help. Most companies decided to build something on their own. So they, they, they spun up their own version of a single view of the customer. And then vendors appeared. And some of the vendors kind of pivoted out of other categories. Some of them now are more purpose-built, bespoke. Salesforce, we actually built one. And, and what it is, it's just a flexible customer database, but it has certain requirements. One is that it has to accept data, ingest data from just about any source, but probably just common marketing data sources. It has to, there has to be some way to um, organize the data once it's sitting in the, the database. And that would be through um, identity management and harmonization. 
And then there, there probably is some ability to do things like drag and drop segmentation, so basic dashboarding or, or um, analytics. And then it has to be able to be sent out to whatever the, app, the execution system is. So it's, it's plumbing. It's like middleware, but mm -hmm. it, it's trying to solve the disconnected customer data problem. To, to your point around the bespoke solutions that have started to come out, in, in my own research, I found that there are different kinds of CDPs, like there are different categories or different types almost, like some really focus on data management, to your point, but all others might focus more on the segmentation analytics pieces of it. So I'm curious what that what that looks like and how do you categorize these different CDPs? We did actually, Chris O'Hara and I, when we were writing the book, we um, we were we had an existential moment because there was a survey done by Advertiser Perceptions. That's a couple of years ago, probably eighteen months ago now, and they asked. This is a research company, and they asked marketers, "What uh, what vendor did you acquire your CDP from? If you're using a CDP." And we, we came in first, Salesforce did. We, we were like the winner, but at the time we didn't actually have a CDP in the market. <laughs> so we were very happy to see this. We were like winning sure. in a category, you know. Or even trying. <laughs> and there were other actual CDPs in this. Um, so anyway, we had to really look in the mirror and say, what's going on here? Um, you know, we, and as a company, we said, do we already have this? Is this problem solved or are we missing something or does it require an acquisition? And so we looked at, we were getting RFPs, requests for proposal from, you know, marketers who were saying, you know, tell us what you have with your CDP and these are our requirements. So we just, we read all of these things. We're like, we're not going to tell you what a CDP is. You tell us marketers. And it was really all over the place. You know, the, the um, feature, it was like a, a fishing expedition in some cases where they listed every single feature requirement and they were going to see what vendors checked off. But we did notice there were two, th there were themes and the, the types of things people wanted. One is was really single view of the customer. So they wanted a persistent 360 view of customer data that they could customize to a certain extent, but it would be persistent and it could be used by, you know, the marketing team without too much um, hands-on from IT. That was one set of requirements. And I called that, a, we called that system of insight. And there was another set of requirements that were much more about real-time personalization. So it was very much more about uh, streaming data, uh, you know, triggered event triggers and, um, personalizing in a particular session. Like if somebody arrives on the site and they exhibit some behavior, you can start building up a profile right away. And then you can, like they're looking at a certain product category. Why not personalize that session? So mm -hmm. that that seemed distinct to us. There was like real-time personalization and there was persistent customer data store, distinct tech technically, but also distinct in terms of the user. And our, our end hypothesis that we talk about in the book is that an enterprise CDP, a true CDP, needs both. You need the system of insight and the system of engagement that need to be tightly coupled, but you know could be distinct systems. And that's, that's where we ended up. We ended up building customer 360 audiences, system of insight, and acquiring a company called Evergage to be Interaction Studio, which is the system of engagement. So as we that think was all about last year, yeah, yeah. As as we think about how Salesforce is kind of positioning their CDP, it's focusing on those those two main solutions. And I think the the one thing that 
a lot of our customers or, or prospects or folks that we talk to struggle with is what are the, the key benefits of a CDP? And I think that what you mentioned earlier is is data accessibility, right? Being able to tie all of this data together, have the single view of the customer, that, that notion that we hear a lot. But what are some of the other benefits um, outside of kind of having that single view of the customer to implementing a CDP? Well, I mean, you hit on a, a really key question, which is why do why do you want this thing, you know, mm -hmm. marketer? <laughs> yeah, and because uh, I think, but I think that that's what a lot of people struggle with because we have yeah. a lot of folks who come to us and say, "Hey, our IT team said we should be looking at implementing a CDP." Like, what's a CDP? And then you'll have the marketing team sometimes pushing it, or you'll have a data team pushing it. So I think it's really interesting how it's kind of broken down the wall, so to speak, within an organization that everybody seems to be aware of this thing, but no one seems to be um, completely aware of how it could benefit the organization as a whole. Yeah, and, and we noticed that you know, in, in the research process for the book, we would ask marketers would say, well, do you want a single view of the customer? And nobody's gonna say no. They're like, of course, <laughs> right. of course I wanna, and I want it to be updated in real time and I want it to be widely available and, uh, you know, <laughs> of course, you do uh, but then the follow-up question is well what would you do with it if you had it say say you know magically this single view of the customer appeared and quite often there was an awkward pause at that moment because many times people don't think past that mm -hmm. the single view of the customer is not an end in itself as you rightly point out uh, you know unified persistent data sitting in a database is worthless if it doesn't do anything. <laughs> uh, most of the original applications, and David Rob makes this point frequently for a CDP, are, are um, in the realm of analytics. They it does enable having clean data is something that the data science team uh, finds as a, a significant obstacle to doing their work. They they require clean data and they require you know as much information about customers as they can get. And what do they do with it? Well, they'll do two things. One is they'll do better segmentation or clustering. So rather than just having high value, mid, mid medium value, low value customers, which is a very crude way based on partial data, you could have some you know very meaningful you know five, six, seven, eight or more very meaningful segments or clusters based on this, this data that can help you do better marketing. You can have eight campaigns rather than three. Uh, the other thing is predictions. So doing predictive analytics, I mean, there's AI as well, so you can take that as you will, but, but predictive analytics in terms of something very practical, like um, what, you know, what is the next item that I should recommend to this person? When I send out an email, don't just blast it out or, or even just send it out to segments. But you know, for this individual, what are they most likely to respond to? And doing that kind of marketing can really increase response rates. And it is as simple as having better customer data upon which you, know, you can unleash analytics. And even if it's manual analytics, even if it's just a data science team pulling it out, running their algorithms and putting scores back in, that's a very valid use case for a CDP. I think as we get more advanced, into the you know, more advanced realms, there can be things like uh, you know, real-time modeling, um, personalizing in a session, or specific use cases like um, you want to use a CDP to make marketing and service work better together. This is a common one with Salesforce, mm -hmm. have Service Cloud, Marketing Cloud. If they have an open case, you know, don't market to them because they'll right. get yeah. On the on the. Part of bringing all of this data together 
and having accessible accessible to it, obviously we want to be able to action on it. That's really the value that the CDP brings um, is being able to action on all of this data. Um, as we think about the you know the quote that's been kind of going around lately of the death to the third party cookie, how how does third party data come into the CDP CDP area or, or does it? I guess is the first question. And two, does does the removal of them affect the CDP in one way or another? Well, CDP, like any technology, is uh, is agnostic in a sense. So it's it's just storage, right? So if you can if you can attach, you you have to be able to to link the identity. But if you have like a profile of a person, say, or an account in the B two B context, and you can attach a piece of data to that to that identifier, whatever it is. Let's just say it's an email, for argument's sake. It's very common. So you have an email as an identifier, and you can attach an email to some piece of data that you've acquired from a third party. You bought it, you found it, you someone gave it to you. <laughs> you you uh, have scraped the web and found it, and you know I'm assuming there's compliance has been um, honored here. But at any rate, uh, that can be put into a CDP. So CDP can indeed house third party data. I think the most common common way would be uh, we think about. You know, if you remember direct mail in the old days, direct mail, there was um, a CRM for B2C. There'd be a database, and then uh, people would go to companies like Equifax or Experian or, or Axiom even today, and they would provide some form of PII name and address or um, you know phone number, and they would say, "What do you have around this person?" And, and you can acquire third-party data that's often from public sources, but that has been organized and then imported into the database and you know, usually it's something like, you know, net worth or maybe even interest in a certain category or, um, you know, value of the household or do they have children or not. This is a lot of demographic type data for that's sourced from third parties. And that data is, you know, can indeed and is put into what we would call a CDP. Uh, I think the in the long run, the value of third party data goes down. Um, for the foreseeable future. And the reason is just uh, not that it, it isn't accurate, but the reason is that first party data is much more powerful if it can be collected. And the reason I, you know, the obvious reason for that is that third party data is available on the open market. So if you can get it, your competitors can get it. It's not a differentiator mm -hmm. in most cases. First party data though is, you can collect information from consumers that nobody else has. And so that could that could be a competitive differentiator. That's why we're seeing a big tilt these days from, as we all know, from third party to first party data. Yeah. Party data in zero party. That's what I love that about. thought though. That's a great point that it is it's not a competitive differentiator. And a lot of times we'll have customers ask, like, do you guys provide any um, data append services or anything like that? And we don't, because um, we don't really find that there's a whole lot of value in it. But to your point, I think that's a great way of saying it if it's not a differentiation element of it instead of trying to find some third-party data that may or may not be accurate that everybody has access to how could we better engage our customers or our known people to get more first-party data from them yeah and and some third-party data for instance the credit score or credit worthiness or maybe maybe credit score isn't a great idea but it just in general you know uh, income bracket or or something around like you'll you'll know somebody's address, but you want to acquire some information around the, the neighborhood. That is third-party data, but this demographic data, it's also publicly available. It can be useful. You can put it into your model. Marketers can definitely find that useful, uh, but it's not really the heart of the value of a CDP. The heart of the value of CDP is around 
information about customers and prospects that you've gathered openly with their consent and you know that can give you some real oomph in your marketing well, in my experience asking people, you know, the amount of money they make or their religion or political affiliation is always <laughs> a great way to learn more about them. And, you know, I oh, think definitely, especially when you first meet customers them. just ask them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. When people ask me my salary or how much I paid for my house, I always tell them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> open, open book. So as we think about like all, all these different uh, kind of key components of a CDP, you talked about interaction studio being that kind of real time element where we're able to take in all these different activities and then customer 360 audiences being that insights layer and that segmentation layer. So we can really think about a CDP as not only bringing together our known data, but also the unknown data or anonymous folks prior to them becoming known um, or making themselves known yep. to our organization. Yeah, and I think there, there's nuance here, of course, because we, we sometimes draw a diagram, which I can draw with my hands here, but there's, <laughs> there's kind of two worlds, essentially, and there's the, the proxy, what I call the proxy world up here, and that would be the world of cookies and, and other identifiers that aren't, aren't personally identifiable. So I can look at a proxy ID and not really know who the person is, but it's still, it can persist and you can use it to link mm -hmm. things. Um, that's usually, that's kind of ad tech, but it's also anonymous visitors to your website. Now, as third-party cookies go away, of course, ad tech changes a lot, but you still have first-party cookies. So you can still you know, tag somebody if you get their consent, you can tag them on your site and recognize them when they come back using this first this first party identifier, but it's not it's not PII. Like you could still I could look at it and not know their name. I mean that's that's why it's proxy. <laughs> but that's one world and that's the unknown. And that, you know, these first party cookies or if they log in for instance, then they become known. There's there's no reason and in fact you can within Interaction Studio attach the email which is PAI to the first party cookie which is unknown. So you can bridge the known and unknown. But the the bulk of what a CDP focuses on would be known data, data about customers and prospects who with whom you have some kind of a relationship and they have consciously provided you some kind of information. Uh, that's not to say that the unknown piece is, is blind, as you said, rightfully, if somebody arrives on my site, for instance, or opens my app, and I've never seen them before, they, they've started a relationship with me, hopefully, you know, a long, fruitful relationship. But that, that is um, an identifier, it's anonymous, that I can start building up a profile around. So I can start accumulating information about people even before I know their name. You know, hopefully that I'm personalizing. That's that's what Interaction Studio does. I'm personalizing, mm -hmm. making it so compelling that you know then they'll they'll sign up for my newsletter. They'll buy something. They'll you know sign, give me their email for more information. Um, that's that's the journey that we want them to go down, and they become a customer. And all the time you're building up more and more of this profile by giving you know better and better experience. That's are, the are there? Yeah. yeah. Are there specific in your experience, are there specific industries or sectors that seem to benefit more from a CDP than others? Well, the obvious beneficiaries are those that um, those that have uh, uh, in categories where they have uh, fast purchase cycles 
and it's not a really high consideration product. And I don't mean that if it's a high consideration product, you don't need a CDP. I think anyone could benefit from organizing their customer data. But categories like retail, for instance, or um, media are early adopters of CDP. Financial service like B2C, consumer facing financial service mm -hmm. like credit card companies or insurance, auto insurance. And these are companies that deal with a lot of people uh, who you want to buy multiple products and um, they it, it's it's not it's not a high consideration purchase so that they can go easily to somebody else who's a competitor. So you you kind of have to create some kind of differentiation pretty rapidly. Those people benefit from from a CDP. Also, uh, companies that that have multiple purchases, as I mentioned, can build up a better profile. So you have kind of more information around people. If you're selling luxury cars or you know buildings things like that, you, you don't tend to have a lot of information around people that isn't a part <laughs> of the open market. <laughs> so the, the, and by the way, the CDP, you know, it's always pegged in the marketing space and um, like, oh, it's a tool for MarTech. And it, it doesn't have to be, it's very useful for a service team. It's very useful in the commerce, the commerce space. And there's even, I mean, there's no reason you can't put product data, for instance, that's not person data, it's product data in the CDP and then look it up so that you can kind of create create nice, you know, joins within the CDP so you have more information. So I think that, that you were just beginning to understand how broadly a CDP can be applied across the enterprise. Speaking of how, how broadly, well. yeah, speaking of how broadly it can be, adopted or utilized are there are there typically specific people or specific teams involved in leading the evaluation of a cdp within a company yeah it, it will vary a lot but i um it's it's often led by a marketing and it like a hybrid hybrid team and quite frequently the analytics team will be involved as well along with procurement and um, finance, like the decision makers. But mm -hmm. the, the core of the team is is marketing and IT. It's like the business user, usually, as I said, marketing led, sometimes service. And then uh, IT is required as well because there there is a certain amount of like boundary uh, awareness that, that needs to go on in, a, in an enterprise. CDP has some components that look like master data management and at least have to be compatible with it. There's the enterprise data warehouse. And as I said before, most companies have built their own something. The, the uh, single view of the customer is not a problem that appeared in 2017. Companies have been solving it somehow, you know, in the right. and they solve it somehow today, whether or not they have a CDP. So it's, there's always a question of what's the overlap? What are we replacing? What are we not replacing? What are we, you know, complementing? as you know very well, I mean, you're involved in these implementations, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So they can be quite complex. Well, since we're about halfway through a complete curveball for you here. Yeah. We learned shortly before we jumped on that you're a Taylor Swift fan. So what is your favorite Taylor Swift song? Uh, I like, um, she, she actually, you know, we mentioned this before, um, before we came on the last year, she really was on a roll. I think she, she used Taylor used the uh, pandemic lockdown to be very productive. She, she took an introspective turn. So I think her music became a bit somber, you know, it wasn't quite as exuberant and, um, she was echoing the feelings that we're all having in this past year. So she released two, you know, albums of new material. 
And uh, she has one uh, about a house that I actually saw. It's in Rhode Island. It's a house she owns on the beach. And it, it had been owned by somebody named Rebecca Harkness. And she kind of, she loved ballet and she was a bit of a socialite. And Taylor bought this house. And, and she has a song about the house and about how she kind of relates to the previous owner. And um, I had a marvelous time ruining everything. And so <laughs> I really, I, I really like that because I actually have walked by that house and I have a picture of myself looking up at it along with uh, all the other, you know, many Taylor Swift fans. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, I can see people in the comments who are by far the most excited about us bringing up Taylor Swift. Uh, I will say that before the call, when Marty and I were chatting, I let him know that I was a believer. I'm a big Justin Bieber fan. And he said that you couldn't even compare the two. So I'm hoping that at least someone out there will back me up on being a believer in the audience. But uh, getting back to CDPs. Are you really a believer? I, wow. I really am. Wow. <laughs> That's uh, all right. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's perfect. <laughs> we, all, we always have one hiccup, at That's least. Right. Yeah. So... Thank you, Lindsay. I appreciate it. So uh, as far as companies like leveraging a CDP or um, or going down the road of evaluating one, I think the one thing, whether they're looking at a CDP or they're looking at implementing marketing cloud or anything along these lines, as we think about the MarTech stack, a big element that's come up a lot in the last month or, or I'm sorry, last year or two has been data replication versus data accessibility, right? So if I've got a data warehouse, and I decide to implement a CDP, I don't wanna just take everything I have in my data warehouse and replicate it to that CDP. So I'm curious, as you guys went through the, the research for the book and in your experience, um, it should certainly help with this problem, but is there is there a better way to think about data accessibility versus data replication? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not... Uh... It's not a question that can be answered the same way for every enterprise, but I would say in, in general, I think anyway, this is uh, me talking. Uh, I think the best way to think about customer data platform is that it is a, a highly accessible, very performant, fast, you know, as modern as possible store for customer data, but it's only, it's only the data that you need for the task that you're using it for. It's, I don't want to call it an abstract or a data mart or a data lake, even though it could be called those things because those have bad connotations to some people based on past experience. But I think it is uh, the information that you need for the task and, and not anymore. So it's not a data warehouse. The data warehouse is designed to store everything. It's not a um, data swamp or a data lake. Uh, as mm -hmm. used to be defined, because that was <laughs> the thought there was I would put every, all my data in there and then I'll go look for it if I need it. And when I was at Gartner, we had a study that said that 80% of data put in a data lake is never looked at again. You know, it's dark data <laughs> sitting there. That's not what a CDP is for. It should all be live. It should be live data. It should be realistically accessible. And I, I, it, it would vary, but I think that if my use cases around personalizing my website, my email, all my customer touch points, having better content in my mobile app. And I, I want to focus on um, retention. So having a better experience for existing customers or new customers, then that points me in a certain direction. Is there's certain data fields that I would need and I need access to and because I, I can access on, um, act on them. But there's a lot of data in my organization that doesn't fit any of that, uh, any of those mm -hmm. requirements. So that's probably the best way to think about it. 
the data lake or data swamp uh, reference you just made, it kind of reminds me of uh, how marketers always say they want real-time data. Yeah. And then they get it and they don't really know what to do with it, right? It's kind of like the technology leading to business or the business leading the technology. So I, I'm not surprised to hear that 80% of that data yeah. um, typically goes unused. Well, it's the same in, in the, the world of ad tech. Now, ad tech generates enormous volumes of data, more of a, more data than anyone could even imagine. I mean, I was involved on a camp, in a campaign for tax prep software in the month of April. They they executed a campaign that had 4 billion impressions. I mean, there's only like 8 billion wow. people on the planet, you know? So, yeah. And each one of those is a row in a database, each impression. And, and the, the client actually said, can we have access to this data? <laughs> we want the raw data. And we're like, why? Like, I don't know, we might want to look at it. And, and we're like, you don't want this data. It's, first of all, you, you can't store it. You have nowhere to put it. Yeah. And of all, you'd have no nothing. You'd have no way to, to even uh, process it. So, what same if, issue? Yeah. So if I'm if I'm going down this road, um, you know, the marketing IT team, we've all aligned. We're going to go ahead and purchase the CDP. Um, let's say we went ahead and purchase it, uh, or we're getting ready to purchase it. What should a company have in place prior to implementing a CDP? Are there certain like data management or integration or customer experience strategies or other elements that are really important? Yeah, they, they need, um, well, one, one must have is coordination. They need team coordination. And I mentioned marketing and IT in particular, the business and the, the technical folks, which could be an agency. It's, it's quite often like Lev, for instance, or, you know, an SI. Uh, those people need to be working like together in the mm -hmm. same, not these days, not the same room, but you know, the same zoom, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this needs to be an active working team, not just people who right. occasionally touch base. That's prerequisite one. The second thing though, is under underestimated is that the data itself needs to be well-documented. A lot of time is wasted saying, all right, I need to integrate the email system and I don't know, social. And then I have my own data warehouse over here and, and that the process it's not so easy in some companies because they don't they don't know how it was set up that the, you know the data tables themselves weren't documented or whoever did it left and so the rigor of the process around um, the the found you know the foundational data that's going to be utilized by the CDP that mm -hmm. should be set up in advance the other thing is um, particularly these days the whole idea around privacy and consent needs to be you know, the company needs a handle on it. So they need to have had a, you know, a, a strategy for um, how they're going to gather consent. They need to know what consent they have, or at least be working on it. Because that's another element where, you know, you can say, you don't want to set up a CDP where you have some data that was consented in one way, some data you don't know, some data maybe gathered incorrectly. To untangle that after the fact is, you know, not a good use of time. I'll put it that way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So really having your data in a good place. I, I don't know if you've read Tom Siebel's book, Digital Transformation, but uh, one of the things he mentions in there that I love, because so many people get hung up on this, is that your your data is never going to be perfect. No. It needs to be in a manageable place, but don't expect or don't think that it's going to be perfect before you start building out these additional initiatives that you're trying to do. So same thing here. We want it to be in a, in a place that's manageable, but also that we're keeping track of kind of the different elements that we're bringing into the CDP before we go down that road. 
Yeah, and so and some companies really are very well disciplined. You know, they have great documentation. Mm -hmm. They had a, a very thoughtful strategy about how their their like relational database was structured, and so it's it's much easier in that kind of an environment to you know, spin up a CDP, figure out how you're going to use it, figure out how to map it onto a data model if you want to do that. That kind of environment, it's 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 not routine. You know, there will be hiccups, but it's a lot easier than if you're starting out and saying, all right, so where is the customer data anyway? Who knows? Does anyone know? Like, <laughs> who has the <laughs> manual? Yeah. Uh, that's common too, you know. Yeah. And, and don't be too ambitious. Yeah. Don't don't yeah. do it at a global scale. Uh, you know, before you've ma managed a market. But. No one size fits all for data management or data strategy. Yeah. Uh, and I just saw Lauren your comment about the the book I mentioned. It's Digital Transformation by Tom Siebel. Highly recommend it. It's a really great read. In uh, kind of building out and starting to promote. Uh, the Salesforce CDP customer 360, what's been the most successful use case or the most successful implementation of it that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, it's customer 360 audiences, which is the name of our system of insights. So this basic CDP it is a new product for Salesforce. It was launched last fall. And, you know, people ask me, why did it take so long? Because, you know, CDPs have been around since 2013. And well, you guys have been in the leader for so long too. <laughs> we've been, yeah, we were leading. So we, uh, we <laughs> but the answer to that question is that it was, it was built. Um, we did a build by acquire, you know, assessment, and we realized we needed to build it on the Salesforce core platform, which to outsiders may not mean much, but what it, what it does mean is that um, it uses the same data model as sales and service cloud. And it has the same front end. We use the same packaging, so we had a head start. But it also is compatible with App Exchange, so you can plug, you can develop. One can develop independent software vendors, or, or clients can develop um, applications mm -hmm. and put them on the App Exchange, make them available to others, or just use them themselves. And that makes it very extensible. And so we wanted it to be, you know, seamlessly integrated into the Salesforce world. That's not to say it only accepts data from Salesforce. That's, you know, it wouldn't be a CDP if, it, if that were the case, uh, except data from anywhere. But it is definitely a Salesforce product. And that's why it took longer. We actually had to build it from scratch. And they worked, you know, the engineers worked very hard for a couple of years. And we had a V1 release and we just had a V2 release and it's uh, progressing very quickly. My favorite use case for it is, I think it's indicative of people who are finding success early with it. There was a, a a customer of ours who um, they they ran a bunch of convenience stores. Think of like Seven Eleven, but not Seven <laughs> Eleven. And they, they sell food and and gas and that kind of thing. And um, they had they had a lot of data in Service Cloud. In a way, Service Cloud was their single source of truth. So they they had a customer service center and they had a loyalty program that they had just launched. And they had about two million members in the loyalty program. And they sent emails. To people and uh, their their most popular product was a pizza. They they sold pizza, very tasty, but their promotional emails were uh, they showed a pepperoni pizza because that's the most popular. And um, what they wanted to do, their thought was, well, what if we could actually put a, an image or have a promotion for the pizza that that person, that actual person, preferred because they had different types. <laughs> And this sure. was mind blowing because, but what it would require was coordinating the loyalty data with the email system, basically, and then it would have to triangulate with the with the customer data that sat in Service Cloud, 
And they were able to do that with customer 360 audiences. They, they pulled those data fields in and they mapped to, to the person they could figure out from the loyalty data uh, which pizza they bought most frequently, and then then it was a matter of putting up the putting together the workflow to, you know, change the image in the email, and when they started to send out the emails of you know if you like the taco pizza it would be a promotion for taco pizza, and of course their response rate went through the roof. <laughs> sure, and we say that's very simple, but on the other hand, uh, they couldn't do it before. You know, it required connection, a data connection yeah. to make. Newsflash, personalization works. I mean, yeah. That, in <laughs> fact, yeah, I mean, that's a vivid example. And it's uh, it's almost a no-brainer. If yeah. I get a promotion for a pizza I actually like, I'm much more likely to cash it in. But <laughs> Which which in reality, like in, um, I shouldn't say in reality, but in theory, all these things should be easily accessible, right? But in reality, yeah. they're all on different systems. They're very yeah. difficult to, to sometimes stitch together. So it's a, it's a great example, a great use case for sure. Yeah, and it's done manually. It's kind of kludged together. Mm-hmm. And it, it creates a lot of headaches and overhead, you know. And one of the other, like we had a pilot who was, uh, they did medical devices. And they said they used to generate four reports each year about a particular program and it's because it had 12 different sources and all the data had to be imported manually to someone's laptop and then they cut and paste it and put it in excel so they could only do four a year (laughs) and they were able to to automate that basically so they churned them out every week i mean that person you know had to be put on a different project (laughs) yeah that's awesome yeah uh, so um, before we get to our, our last section, I um, wanted to quickly plug that Marty is the co-host of the Salesforce Marketing Cloudcast. Um, so you can find him there wherever you find your podcast. And then also uh, Lev has a podcast that um, Cole Fisher and I co-host in the clouds. At the end of every one of those episodes, we have a, a section called Completely Unrelated, which is where we talk about something that's completely unrelated to anything that we talked about in the uh, episode or anything like that. So I wanted to do that with you here, Marty. I'm curious, especially with your your wide range of experience and, and background, yeah. what's been the most interesting story from your career? <laughs> well, uh, when I was at Pop-Up Video, I, I used to write, those of you who don't remember, it was in the late 90s, we'll say, on MTV Networks and VH1, and it was um, videos would play, and then bubbles would appear on the video with the bloop, like bloop, and there would be you know, some fact in the bubble. So I would write the facts. That was my job. And in order to gather those facts, we had to, we tried to interview the artists. Um, and often we couldn't get the artists. Either they they were dead or, you know, they're living under a rock somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Get their manager. <laughs> and let me just say that it de-glamorized the idea of being famous. This this job, um, having a being a one-hit wonder or being a rock star does not look like a good career. But anyway, that aside, my idol at the time and maybe still was a woman named Debbie Harry, who was in a band called Blondie, uh, which was huge in the '80s and into the '90s, and. I got to do a Blondie video. Uh, it was Rapture, like she rapped. <laughs> and I, I got to talk to her. I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. I'm going to interview on the phone. I was going to interview Deb- Deborah Harry. And uh, I was I was really nervous. And, and this is like, I mean, I had her picture up, you know, when I was younger on the wall. 
And so uh, I, I rang the number and uh, this voice answered and they're like, oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this must be the, the caretaker. I'm like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, calling from Pablo Video. I'd like to talk to Debbie Harry, please. Speaking. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she was like, she, I guess she smoked a lot or I don't know what, but she sounded like a grumpy old man. <laughs> And uh, I was like, Jamie, I really, really like, you know, I really think you're awesome and everything. And she's like, yeah, so what? Hi, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just was, I don't know, not what we I We just did. had someone comment that Debbie Harry's better than Swift and Bieber combined. So, <laughs> well, she was such a great singer, but I don't know what happened. She's still how out was, there. <laughs> how did the conversation go? Not well, not well. <laughs> not well. <laughs> She didn't answer any of my questions. I, I don't know. She seemed annoyed. Oh, that's funny. Looking back, well, though, anyway. I, I was thinking about that. Maybe it wasn't her. Maybe it was a prank. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. I don't know. If anybody has any questions, go ahead and throw them into the, the comments chat. We'll get to as many as we can. While they're putting those in, I was curious, uh, how do I get Don Cheadle to play me in a TV show? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, the uh, the development process for my book was almost comical and hilarious and hilarious and I was watching it all from the outside because I wrote this book not I didn't expect it to be anything about Hollywood and um, mm -hmm. it was it went through a whole process and all I did was say sure yeah okay I'll believe it when I see it you know <laughs> and one by one all these little hoops over you know a number of years and in the end they were like okay we're um, we're talking to you know uh, some people like Kevin Bacon, Liv Schreiber. I don't know people who are around my age, and it seemed like they could play the part. And then, uh, and then eventually, like we signed Don Cheadle. I was talking to the producer. I remember I was in Manhattan at the time. I was on the street, and she's like, "We signed Don Cheadle," and I was like, "Who?" <laughs> <laughs> Poor and Don. She was like, "I can't." She, this is a very famous actor who's very well respected, and I'm like. I'm sorry. I, I guess I haven't seen his work. <laughs> I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't actually heard of him and he, it's, he is a great actor. I mean, you know, he did great. He oh, and I are very funny. different though. He's, uh, I think he's from Kansas and I come from Michigan. So we're, we're, you have a different take on life. Sure. Our, our most important question I've seen come through is from Lauren dying to know if Marty prefers folklore or evermore. I like I kind of like folklore. I, I mean, I don't want to say Evermore was like the the other stuff that could be on the second album, <laughs> but the reject maybe stuff. a little. Yeah. I mean, when I when I was a kid, they some bands would have double albums. You know, they'd have like two, and you always knew that it could have been one really good album, but they decided they they couldn't they couldn't choose. <laughs> the Clash and the band had had a triple album, and that had a lot. Oh, of really? Yeah. Shay wants to know if you heard today's surprise drop yet. No. That was a quick, wow. quick answer, Shay. Surprise uh, drop. I'll look yeah. for it. Thank you. Thanks for the tip. I don't maybe he's referring to Bieber. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Marty. Really appreciate it. At a blast going through CDPs um, and Taylor Swift as well. And uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks again for joining us.
Yeah, thanks a lot, Bobby. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, everyone.